Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Hear the word of the Lord. Good morning. It was always such a, a pleasure to have Moffat and Doreen here. Thank you for that, Moffat. And um, if you don't know them, they'll be out on the patio afterwards and would love to meet you. But if you, if you don't, you just need to meet them if you haven't met them. Uh, they're such a delightful uh, couple and, and you need to know about Northrise. It, it's an amazing place. Uh, I haven't been there. I think it's been 15 years since I was last there. So Moffat and I were talking this week about getting back there, hopefully soon. Um, but if you, if you don't know about the Northrise store, I really want to invite you to, to, to talk to them, and, and you'll, you'll be quickly a, a huge fan of what God's up to there. Well, today is our second week on this story that we know as the prodigal son. Uh, maybe Jesus' most uh, famous parable certainly captured people's imaginations for thousands of years now. And uh, last week, we just focused on the father. We looked at this father who has two boys, two lost boys, and we just looked at him and, and his love for each of his kids. We looked at his prodigal love, meaning his extravagant, his uh, almost irresponsible grace 
and joy that he has in both of his boys. And we just tried to let that image of the father wash over us. And I gave you a challenge last week, which was to just sit by yourself with God and with this passage uh, and let this father, the, the image that Jesus gives us of God in this passage, just wash over you and, and write a letter to God. Like, what do you, do you believe this? How does this sit with you? And let this father write a letter to you. What does he feel and think about you? And I, I hope some of you took me up on that challenge. I, I did, and I'm glad I did. Uh, there were some interesting surprises. I'll tell you about it if you want to talk to me offline. I'm not going to share it right now. It's far too personal. Um, no, it was great. Um, so today, uh, we got one more week in this. We're going to look at these two boys, the two sons in this story. Uh, the younger son, who runs away from home, right? Reckless, selfish, irresponsible. And the older son, who stays home, dutiful, right? Responsible, good. Uh, two boys who look very different on the outside. But I think once the story is told, you realize on the inside, both of these boys are equally lost, both these boys are, are in equal need of being found by their father. And so we're going to look at each of them in turn. Uh, this week I read uh, Tim Keller's book called The Prodigal God, which is his short book uh, on the prodigal son. Some of you have read that, and I really enjoyed that. I'd never read it before. Um, but he argues that these two boys, I think appropriately argues, they, they represent two distinct postures that human beings have uh, in relationship to God. There's the irreligious posture where you basically run away from God and live life the way you want. And then there's the religious posture, which is you try to work for God and keep all the rules. And he argues that neither of those postures, the irreligious or the religious, is the gospel. But for, since the beginning of time, people have been pursuing either running from God or working for God. And he says the gospel is a third way. It is a different way. It is about the grace of God. It's about coming home to the love of the Father, whether you pursue an irreligious life or a religious life. And so we're going to look at these two ways of life together today, and hopefully we're going to hear the gospel, the good news. And I hope that no matter how many times you've heard the good news, today is an opportunity to hear it afresh and to respond, to come home to God, however you need to come home to God this morning. And I put in your uh, bulletins, I'll put it up here, Jesus' invitation from Matthew 11, uh, where he says this. One of my favorite statements of Jesus in all the Gospels, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And yoke are those things that oxens carry, right? The burdens that they carry. And he's saying, have you been carrying a heavy yoke? I've got a different yoke for you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I think of these two sons, and each in their own way was carrying a very heavy yoke. And what they needed was to be released from that yoke. And there was a father who longed to, to release them from their yoke and say, come home to me. Let me show you my easy and light yoke. And so that's, as we look at these two sons, I hope that you can look wherever in your life right now, you feel weary and burdened. And Jesus is saying, I've got a different way for you. It is a light yoke. It's a, it's a yoke of my grace and my goodness and my love for you. All right? So let's look at these two boys. Uh, my assumption is most of us in this room will relate to one of these boys more than the other. Um, 
Some of us are, are, you know, the second born. We feel that more running away from God. Some of us feel the first born. If you're like me, um, you feel like you've got a lot of both of them in you. That sometimes you want to run from God and do your own thing, and then that causes problems. And then you try to come back and you try to work for God and fix it. So you kind of find yourself in both of these sons in different parts of you. Um, So we'll see where you find yourself this morning. Uh, But let's look at these boys in turn. Let's start with the younger brother where Jesus starts the story. Uh, Classic stereotypical second born, I would say, right? Spoiled. He's the baby, free-spirited, irresponsible, stereotypically speaking. Uh, I want to talk about his decision, and I want to talk about his yoke. And you might find yourself in this younger, younger son. All right, let's look at the, the decision. Verse 12, read with me. Uh, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got all, together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Uh, so he asks for his inheritance, and last week we talked about, culturally speaking, an inheritance is something you receive when the father dies. So to say, give me my inheritance now, is essentially the son saying to his father, you're dead to me. Basic. I don't need you. I don't want you. I, I want your stuff, but I don't really want a relationship with you. And, and what is so interesting about that, I was thinking this week, is once you've read the story, uh, it's everything in the story that would tell us that this father is a very loving, gracious, generous dad, and his house is a really great place to live. And yet somehow, all of that's been lost on this boy. He's grown up in it. And yet, he doesn't appreciate it. He doesn't appreciate who his father is. He doesn't, he doesn't appreciate what a relationship with his dad is all about. He doesn't even want a relationship with his dad. What does this son want? What would you say? Fun? Fun? Freedom? Yeah, right? I heard both those F, two F words. That's good. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd say he wants freedom, right? He, he, he wants... He wants freedom to live however he wants, right? He wants out from under his father's roof, out from under his father's rules. He wants to live life the way he wants to live it. Another way of saying it, he wants control. He wants to control his life. He wants to make his own decisions. He doesn't want his dad calling the shots for him. I want to live my life the way I do, what I want, so that's what he does. Uh, Keller says this is the irreligious impulse uh, that is in almost every human heart. It's this desire for freedom, right? This desire to control, to call the shots of our own lives. And that impulse has been around since the dawn of time. The biblical story is ever since Adam and Eve, right? Who God places in this beautiful home, we could say, the Garden of Eden. And everything about this home would lead them to believe their father is loving and generous and great. And yet somehow that's lost on them. And he puts one rule in his garden, He puts a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, I don't want you touching that tree. Everything they look at would say, he's a good guy. I ought to trust him. And yet they look at that and they say, no, we want our freedom. We want to decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. We don't want a God telling us what is good for us and what is evil. We'll decide, we'll assert the right to to lay that claim to our own lives. We'll decide for ourselves. We want freedom. We want control. We want to make the rules. And so they do. Uh, And they quickly experience (laughs) the burden of their freedom, if you know the story. 
But that, that impulse is in the human heart. It's always existed. And, you know, I, I think we're living in a, in a cultural moment in our nation, in America, um, where we are really moving towards this almost unbridled freedom. That, that, that is, that is the, the prime value being kind of communicated to us. I mean, if you watch TV shows, right, if you're looking at advertisements, especially reality TV, I, I recommend lots of reality TV watching, okay? But if you do, the, the message is always, right, like find that voice inside of you, right, and you follow that. You figure out who you are, and you be that to the best, and don't let anything keep you back from whatever that is. That's where fulfillment's going to be found. It's this message of freedom, freedom to be the you that you want to create. That's where happiness and joy is found. And so we're in this experiment in freedom in our nation. There's incredible financial freedom being promoted, right? We've got this capitalistic, materialistic place, and you can, you can kind of spend how you want. There's a sexual freedom that we're experimenting with over the last 70 years or so in terms of sexual behavior, in terms of sexual identity, free to kind of do it how you want. There's a, even geographical freedom, right? We can travel, we can move around. You don't have to stay in one place. You can move about. So freedom is this, this, this huge value in our culture. And uh, we're products of that, um, even if we go to church. We might come to church and we might say, I believe in the Bible and I, I, I think about God's rules. But, but really when it comes down to some of the practical things in our lives, like how I actually spend my money, how I actually spend my time, what I do with my own body, uh, we're products of this. We want freedom, right? We want control. We want to do what we want to do. So this boy uh, embarks on an experiment in freedom, Right? Uh, and there's some pretty quick consequences to that experiment. Verse 14, uh, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. All right, so his, his life quickly collapses in almost epic fashion. Uh, he goes broke. Uh, he becomes desperate, he hires himself out, and now he is uh, tending pigs in a distant country. And he learns a really valuable lesson. And here's the lesson. Freedom is not all it's cracked up to be after all, right? Unbridled freedom is what I mean. Freedom for freedom's sake is, is not all it's cracked up to be. Freedom can be a massive burden, ironically, that freedom can become its own slavery, uh, it can, there, there's a yoke that that kind of unbridled freedom has in its consequences that um, are painful and hard. And again, Adam and Eve, the minute they pursued freedom, they felt the yoke of that freedom as they all of a sudden realized they were naked, right? And now they were feeling shame and guilt. They'd never felt that before. It was this heavy burden that was weighed on them because of their freedom, so to speak. And I, I think that our, our American culture today I think it's beginning to feel the ache of this experiment in freedom. Okay, the message is still you be you and, and do whatever you want. But I think our nation is starting to feel underneath, feeling the burden, the ache, the yoke of its experiment in freedom. I mean, you think about the financial freedom that's been promoted, and yet people are living under the bondage of debt. It's a slavery because they just thought, I can do what I want. And now they're in deep 
slavery financially. Um, There's been this experiment in sexual freedom. And now you have all these people who are in bondage to, to sexual addiction, right? To pornography, to other forms of sexual addiction, or just this whole experiment right now in sexual identity. And now you have these kids who are being given all sorts of freedoms of who they are, but it, it's in this utterly confusing uh, world to try to figure out now. It, it isn't freeing. It's enslaving. Or you think about even the, the geographical freedom that we have in, in, in moving from place to place, and yet you, you have these people, because of that, who don't feel rooted anywhere. They live rootless lives. They don't feel deeply connected into a community of core friends. They're transient. They have these loose relationships. I was reading, um, or I was listening, actually, to a podcast. This guy, Mark Sayers, who's an Australian pastor, uh, and he gave this analogy that was super helpful. This is particularly with uh, the younger generation, maybe millennials and below today, are feeling this. Um, it's awesome. You guys, I spent a lot of time on this. This is a stool. It's a stool. I like stools. Um, so he, sa- he gives this analogy um, of like a fulfilling life. Fulfillment in life uh, is like this three-legged stool. You need, you need three foundations of a fulfilling life. And he says they are community, freedom, and meaning. Every human being needs these three things to flourish and, and, you know, find fulfillment in life. And he says, our culture is camping out 100% on that freedom value. It's, we're putting all our chips. It's all about who, be who you can be, right? The problem is that unbridled freedom really works against community and works against meaning. Because if you just want to be free to do what you do and keep your own, well, there's something very limiting to community, Right? Like a marriage is incredibly limiting or deep friendships are limiting. You have to show up. You have to keep showing up. You can't just do what you want, right? You, you have to stay connected when it's hard, when it's good. Well, that's a limit on your freedom. And unbridled freedom, it's really hard to have meaning. Because <laughs> usually meaning comes from these deeper underlying truths, whether it comes from some religious tradition or some spiritual tradition. And if you give a person just the the freedom to discover their own truth, they end up kind of not knowing what life's all about. And so we've got a generation of people right now, especially in the maybe my age and below, uh, where they're they're feeling the effects, the yoke of freedom. And and it's a generation that that is more depressed than any other generation, is more anxious than any generation. It's feeling lonely and isolated. Very loose relationships, right? Super connected via social media, but no, like, really deep friends. And having a really hard time trying to figure out, what's my purpose in life? Like, what do, what do I do with my career and my life? It's this experiment of freedom that's, that's going awry. So, uh, I know I'm drawing this out a little, but I think it's important to think through this. So, this, this son, um, he... He feels the burden, and, he, and this guy really hits rock bottom, doesn't he? Um, we talked about rock bottom a little bit last week, um, but he hits rock bottom. If you're a wealthy Jewish man, young man, which this boy is, rock bottom would be uh, yeah, destitute, living in a Gentile place, uh, having to be around pigs, but not only having to be around pigs, having to feed pigs, but not only having to feed pigs, wanting the food that pigs eat, okay? That's rock bottom for a Jewish wealthy boy, wanting the food that pigs eat. And everyone has their own rock bottom in life. 
But there's this profound statement in verse 17 about the boy. This is the turning point of the story for him. It says, when he came to his senses, and it's a great description of what can happen at rock bottom. It literally, he came to himself. He, he woke up and realized something. And this is what rock bottom teaches you. You realize something about sin, and it's this. Sin is not just bad. In the end, sin is dumb. Right? Like, in the end, it's not just bad and wrong. It's dumb. He comes to his senses, and he realizes, this is crazy. Like, what I'm doing is crazy. I'm bumping my head against reality, and reality's winning. Right? And that's a beautiful realization. And he, realize, he realizes, you know, and, and what one can realize at rock bottom is that God's rules that felt restricted, they're not arbitrary. They, he even just, he's not just creating rules. They are reality. He's trying to help you flourish. He's trying to help you live a flourishing life. And rock bottom can teach you that. And rock bottom teaches this son, and this is the turning point in his life. Um, this is why most people in the world don't actually live wildly irreligious lives. Okay, it, it happens some, but not wildly. It just doesn't work for very long. So what we tend to do is we just dabble, right? We just kind of pick and choose where we're going we're, we're gonna, to we're gonna run from God. Um, but I want to, before we leave this, this first son, I just want to ask you, um, where are you feeling in your t- life right now? Where are you feeling the yoke, the burden of your own freedom? Okay? And it might not be wild. It might be just dabbling. It might be more subtle. But where have you chosen in certain areas of your life to say, you know what, God? I don't care. I don't care what this says. I want to do it the way I want to do it. And where is that decision beginning to create an ache in you? And that ache may be the ache of anxiety, where you're like, I, I'm trying to control my life. I'm trying to keep things. I, I'm not entrusting control to God, but the yoke is I'm anxious all the time. Um, where is that yoke? Addiction. You know, I, I, I wanted to do this thing, but now, man, I, I can't stop. And I'm feeling enslaved to this very thing that I thought would bring me freedom. Where's the yoke guilt and shame or discontentment, uh, restlessness? Where are you feeling the yoke? Today is a fresh opportunity to come to your senses and return home. And if this son is any indication, we know that the moment we turn home, we have a father who is waiting with open arms for us. Amen? Amen. Okay, so transition from the younger son. Let's look at this older boy now. And my guess is, uh, I would guess even more of you relate to this guy than the guy we just talked about. Uh, Older son, again, classic firstborn, right? Classic firstborn, responsible, moral, dutiful. I would assume from the outside, from the village's perspective, everyone would have liked this son. They would have said, man, that straight as an arrow, that boy is, right? I mean, that guy's going someplace. He, he makes his father proud, I'll bet. Not like that screw up of a second son, right? Never left home, never rebelled. Uh, but as we'll see, absolutely just as lost as his younger brother, and maybe even more so, certainly more so by the end of the story. 
Um, let's look at his dialogue with his father. It begins in verse 28. Um, so he, of course, you know, he hears the younger son's return. The father welcomes him with open arms and is celebrating fattened calf, music and dancing. There's a party, and he's out in the fields working, right? And he is furious. He's angry with this, and he refuses to go in. And so his father actually has to leave his own party to come out and entreat his son to come in and join the party for his second, his, uh, his younger brother. Uh, let me read it again. Verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. We talked about that word last week, right? All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. All right, he's just oozing with, with anger, with self-righteous uh, uh, jealousy, judgmentalism towards his, his, under, his younger brother. But I think what he says in verse 29, okay, we didn't talk much about this last week, is so revealing. Look what he says. All these years, I have been what? Slaving, right? Serving you, and I have never disobeyed your, your orders, Right? That's a very telling statement about his relationship, how he perceives his relationship with his dad. I have been serving, I have been slaving for you all these years. I've been working my tail off for you. Right? I have tried to please you. I've tried to work. I've tried to do enough for you, Dad. I never disobeyed you. <laughs> okay? Now, I, I'm learning with kids. Kids like to say always and never a lot. Right? <laughs> Um, I doubt this statement is true, <laughs> I've, but it feels that way to him. It feels in this, like, I've always obeyed you. I've never disobeyed. I have worked so hard to do the right thing for you all the time, dad. He has this profound sense of his own obedience, his own responsibility, his own duty towards his father. And here's the great tragedy of the older son. In all of his attempts to serve his father, it becomes very clear that he actually doesn't love his dad. Right? He's been trying to serve him. He doesn't love him. And that's so clear in his tone of, of, of resentment and anger and just the way he treats his dad. He is, and he's never internalized his dad's love for him. He's never left home. He stayed home the whole time. And yet, he's so busy working for his dad that he has no idea what a real relationship with his dad is like. He, he doesn't know what it's like just to have a deep, loving, intimate, close relationship of joy with his father for all the years in his father's house. And his father's response is so telling and, and is trying to get at that issue. Look at how his father responds in verse 31. He says, my son, Son, you're not a servant. You're not my servant. You're my son. That's, that's how I've always seen you as my son. And then he says this, you are always with me. And I think he's trying to communicate, that's what this is about for me as your dad. I just want to be with you. I just want us to be together. I don't care about your, your dutiful service. I mean, you're my kid. I just want to be with you. What, what, 
what good dad wouldn't simply want to be with their kids. And then he says this, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Now that is literally true now because he already gave off the younger, the younger son's inheritance, right? But I think he's saying this, this is all yours. It's always been yours. You've never had to work for this, okay? This is yours by right as being my, you're my kid. This is your inheritance. It's always been yours whether you realize or not. You don't have to work for this. You have to serve me to gain this. It's yours. You're my kid, right? That's the dynamic. The tragedy is this. All these years, he's been living like a servant when all along he's actually a son, and he doesn't even know it, or he doesn't even know what it's like to live that way. And again, back to the, the Tim Keller idea, what he says is, is the older son, he, he represents the other fundamental posture of the human heart. It is the, the posture of religious moralism, right? And it's been around since the dawn of time, since Adam and Eve, right? They chose the younger son's way of independence and freedom, and they found themselves naked and ashamed, and then what did they try to do as a response? Do you remember? They tried to hide. And what did they first do? They took what? Fig leaves. They took fig leaves and they tried to sew fig leaf suits for themselves. Right? To cover themselves up. And you think how desperate to try to take fig leaves and to keep those things together. To try to cover up their own nakedness. And that is a fundamental posture of the human heart. When, when we, we intuitively know of our own inadequacy or brokenness or sin or shame or guilt or nakedness, whatever you want to call it, and rather than simply going to God and say, Lord, I need you to solve this, we say, I can fix this, right? Somehow, I can, I can clothe and cover and hide this, and the most common way we do it is through our own religious moral pursuits. Maybe if I'm good enough, right? Maybe if I'm nice enough. Maybe if I know enough. Maybe if I serve enough, I can cover and hide up and put together something that God will look at and say, well done. You know, you're good. You're covered. You got it. And we just keep going. We keep trying to do it in in our own efforts, in our own flesh, right? Their own moral pursuits, maybe I can take care of the problem that I feel, which is this fundamental sense of inadequacy and brokenness that I know is inside of me. And here's the irony about the religious pursuit. It is actually an attempt, hear this, okay? It's actually an attempt to avoid our need for God. And that sounds really strange. You think, isn't religion all about God? Well, it can be, but in this case, it's actually an attempt to avoid our need for God. It's our attempt to say, I, can, I got myself in this, and I can fix it. Through my own moral efforts, I'll do it. So really, it's all about control in the end. The younger son wanted control, and the older son, he wants control. He just asserts his control through moral, dutiful obedience. The problem is, is to choose this second way, the way of religious moralism, is also to take on a yoke that is very heavy, to take on a burden that God did not intend us to bear. And let me just talk through this burden, the burden of the older brother, and you 
listen and go, do I, am I carrying some of this burden? Okay, let me just mention a couple things that are clear from this brother. Let me describe this yoke. First thing is this. It's, it's a yoke of weariness. It's a, it's a heavy yoke because you're always trying to perform, right? You're, you're always having to, to be good in order to feel accepted. And those fig leaves keep peeling off, right? So you got to keep stitching them back together. It's an, it's an endless task. It involves a lot of self-criticism when we fail, when we're not good enough. Uh, this yoke is a yoke where you experience a lack of intimacy with God. Meaning this, for all your religious activity in your heart, you do not have an experience of a deep, enjoyable, intimate relationship with God where you love him and you know that he loves you. And you're frustrated about that. You're like, I'm doing the things. I'm, I'm reading my Bible. I'm going to church. I'm praying. You know, I'm doing these things. And yet, and at the heart of it, I do not have a joyful relationship with God. I do not deeply experience his love for me. The reason is because I'm trying so hard to earn it that I can't just stop and receive it. Right? Um, it's a yoke of resentment when life doesn't go your way. And life didn't go uh, the way for this older brother, and he's deeply resentful. And we're resentful when life doesn't go our way because we think this. We would never say this, but we think this. I don't deserve this, right? Because I've been earning it. I've been working. I've been doing the right things, and then something comes in my life, and it's not my fault. And I'm resentful because I feel in my heart I don't deserve this because I've been a good boy. I've been a good girl, right? And then the, the other... <laughs> aspect of this yoke is the yoke that we put on others, right? It is the yoke of self-righteousness and judgmentalism. And that's really what comes out in this older brother, right? He's just oozing with self-righteous judgmentalism, a sense of moral superiority over his younger brother and and an inability to, to extend grace to his brother. And, And that's what comes with this religious moralism, because the reality is, is we're working hard, right? We're working hard to earn this. And we look at other people, they're not working as hard. They're not, they're, they're, they're falling short. And there's a sense of, you know, self-righteousness. We're better. Sense of judgmentalism. It can be really strong or it can be subtle. The older brother, of course, represents the Pharisees of Jesus' day, right? That's why he's telling this parable. He's telling this parable to Pharisees, to the religious experts of the day. Uh, And I would say that today, uh, the church in America um, is also filled with lots of older brothers, right? And the reality is that the American church, and um, I'm not sure whose fault this is, tends to attract older brothers more than it attracts younger brothers, right? Uh, And I would guess the percentages are most of us relate more to the older brother in this story, and I think there's reasons for that. Uh, But I think of the culture today. The American culture looks at the American church and, and they see the yoke of the American church. And, and they're like, you say you've got the truth and you've got to figure it out. But we look at your lives and we see the yoke. You're, you're kind of unhappy people. <laughs> you know, you're, you're always, um, you're weary, you're tired. Um, it feels like you're, you're racked with guilt and, and you're self-righteous and judgmental. Who wants to be that way? Yeah. Right? Why would I want to carry that yoke? Right? Yeah. So you've got these two different brothers 
On the outside, they look so different, right? (laughs) They probably look so different. Um, But on the inside, and I'm wrapping this up now, I think what's at the heart is, is pretty similar. What's at the heart for both of them is themselves in the end, right? It's themselves. They, they want control of their life. Uh, one wants control by breaking all the rules. One wants control by keeping all the rules. But the self is fundamentally at the center. And what is missing from both of them in their hearts, the, the, the central reality that is missing is the father himself. It's having a relationship with dad and experiencing the grace, the prodigal, extravagant, wasteful, lavish love and grace of the father. It's experiencing the the abundance of his house. It's, it's, It's experiencing what it means to be the father's kid and all the privileges and joys that come from that. And I'll leave you with that that, that, that that is the third way. It is not irreligion, it's not religion, but it is the gospel. The good news that it's actually not about you in the end. It's about God. It's about him. It's about his love for his kids. And it's, a, it's about a God who doesn't just wait for his kids to figure it out, but tracks them down pursues them, like the shepherd who pursued the sheep, like the woman who went and found the coin and reaches out and initiates like a hound, the hound of heaven, and brings his kids back into his home. The gospel is about simply coming home to the father. You know, to to end with coming back to Adam and Eve, they chose freedom. They felt the, the yoke of that. Then they try to fix it by making their own suits. They feel the yoke of that. You remember what God does for them? Yeah. He makes clothes for them. He makes animal skins for them. These enduring, you know, permanent clothes that fit them well and cover their sense of shame. And we don't know, but maybe he sacrificed an animal to do that. That might be the first indica- instance in the, in the scriptures of a sacrifice. And of course, the, the good news is that that is what God does in Jesus Christ, is that he sends his son as a sacrifice for us. And he dies on a cross. He pays the penalty for all of our irreligion and all of our religion, <laughs> all the ways we blow it and all the ways we blow it by trying to make up for it. And he says, I want to clothe you. Don't try to clothe yourselves. Let me clothe you in the goodness and perfection and righteousness of my son, Jesus. And the gospel is simply trusting in that and coming home and saying, I want Jesus. I want to be found in Jesus. I don't want to try to do this myself. I want to be clothed and be found in him. Because if I'm found in him, he is the father's son, and that makes me a child of God too. A daughter of the king, a son of the king. My father looks at me and says, I just love you. Let me clothe you. Let me extend my grace and my favor to you. Be my child. I'll leave you with this verse. This is 1 John 3, where John is just astounded by this reality. 
See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we, broken, messy, dysfunctional people, should be called the children of God. And that is indeed what we are in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, today we are reminded of how we are like this younger son, (laughs) how we crave freedom from your rules, freedom from under your roof to, to chart our own path. And yet today, some of us are feeling the burden of that freedom. And we also acknowledge the ways we try to make up for that, like the older son, and we try to dutifully obey all your laws, and it's just another way of trying to control things. And where some of us today are feeling the the burden of that. Lord, would you move in us, in our hearts and minds through your spirit to come home again, to, to, to recognize the good news that you just want to clothe us in the righteousness of your son, Jesus. You want to bring us home. You want us to find a home in your love and your goodness and your generosity to us. So help us to do that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.